So Mel came to know Jesus when he was in his mid to late 20s, and he came to know Jesus through the ministry of this church family. And part of his conversion, of course, was coming to understand that he was a sinner in need of God's grace, and he had intellectual challenges that he needed some answers to, and he found those, and he committed his life to Jesus. But you know, his conversion to Jesus was also a conversion of his own imagination. And it involved his own identity, his own self-identity, his own self-understanding, moving from one who is an owner and who has his things and should do with them whatever he wants, to somebody who believes that he belongs to another and that all he has has been given to him by God and should be used for God's purposes in the world. He came to discover that truth that Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians when he says, do you not know that you are not your own? You have been bought with a price and therefore glorify God with your body and with the whole life that belongs ultimately to God. So this morning, what we want to talk about a little bit is what it means to live that out in practice with respect to our money, with our resources, with our homes, with our gifts, with all that we are, with all that we have. What does that look like? And we're going to be exploring together a parable in which Jesus gives us some instruction on this issue. Now, I was kind of thinking, like, what in our culture might reflect this mentality of stewardship? And so what came to my mind is, of course, the greatest superhero of all time. Spider-Man, right? Do you disagree? So Spider-Man, of course, you know, he's, he's bit by that radioactive spider and he is endowed with these great gifts. Uh, Peter Parker can now climb walls with his hands and he can spin webs any size and he can go off and he has superhuman strength and he's just a, got these incredible powers, you know? And there's this crisis early on in the life of Peter Parker after he discovers that he has this great endowment of all of these gifts and all of uh, this power where at first he thinks like, this is mine to use for myself. And he begins to use it for his own gratification, for his own self-advancement and whatnot. But then there comes a point where there's a, a defining moment in his own life where his Uncle Ben through you know, a series of events that he actually triggers by not using his skills uh, to go after a crook. This crook winds up killing his Uncle Ben. And all of a sudden, through the story of Spider-Man, we hear this phrase that reverberates around Spider-Man's head that came from the lips of his Uncle Ben, with great power comes great responsibility. Do you remember this? And this, in essence, is what Jesus is gonna teach us in this parable. He's going to teach us that God has given us great power. He has given us many different resources and many gifts, but with great power comes great responsibility. And so we're going to explore together what this might look like in practice. Now, this is a rather dramatic story that Jesus tells, and the drama unfolds in three acts. And so we're going to uh, kind of tick through each one of these three acts. Act one is the entrusting steward or the entrusting manager. Uh, Act two is two faithful stewards and one lazy one. And then act three is reckoning day. And in each one of these acts, we learn something new about our responsibility as stewards before the face of God. In act one, we learn something about trust. Act two, something about freedom. And then act three, something about accountability. And so let's walk through each one of these acts. Notice act one, 
the entrusting manager. And here we learn something about trust. Look at what it says in verse 14. For it, it there calls back to verse 25 where he says, then the kingdom of heaven will be like. And so now when he says in verse 14, for it, he's speaking about the kingdom of heaven. For the kingdom of heaven will be like a man going on a long journey who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. And to one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, and to each according to his own ability. And then he went away. So the story begins with this great manager, this uh, great businessman who entrusts to three of his employees talents. Now, what is a talent? Well, in the ancient world, a talent was a unit of monetary measurement, and it was the equivalent of about 60 to 90 pounds weight in precious metals. And what almost all of the commentaries agree on is that what a talent was was an enormous sum of money. Some said it was the equivalent of 20 years worth of labor, some an entire lifetime of labor. But what we're looking at here is an enormous sum of money, something in the neighborhood of a million dollars. And so to one servant, he gives $5 million. To another servant, he gives $2 million. And to another servant, he gives $1 million. And the expectation is, is that while the manager is away, the stewards will go out and they will do something with what they have been entrusted with. Now, a couple things I want you to note, though, about these talents. Notice first that the talents are distributed in an uneven fashion. And so one gets five, another gets two, and another gets just one, each according to his own ability. And of course, it's reflecting something here about our own status in life. Not all of us have equal opportunities and experiences and resources and gifts. Uh, some of you were born uh, to a more affluent family and you got a better education and you were given more opportunities, some less, and, and some of us have a great deal of resources and some of us less, but all of us have something. And that's what's reflected here in this parable is that the gifts, though distributed in an uneven fashion, though not everyone has the same amount, everyone has something and everyone has quite a lot. You know, a million dollars is quite a lot, even if you just have one million dollars. I would take just one million dollars, wouldn't you? <laughs> Second, the talents are on loan. Although they're given to the servants, they ultimately still belong to the manager. It's kind of like if you are a parent with three teenage children at home, like I am. And you give to your child a phone, and uh, if your daughter is 17, like I have a 17-year-old daughter, and you hand her the keys to the car, like we have, and sometimes you give her the credit card uh, to run off to the store, well, you've given her some incredible trust, right? A credit card, a phone, and a car. Now, all of those belong ultimately to Alicia and I. We pay the bill on the phone, we pay the insurance on the car, and we pay the credit card statement every single month. But we've entrusted those items to my daughter, you know, when they run to the store. And the expectation, of course, is that when Audrey runs to the market, that she will not, you know, run off, instead of going to the market, she runs down to Mexico, you know, and... Um, <laughs> throws a big party for a week, but she'll be faithful with what she has been given. You see, those goods are on loan. 
And what Jesus is saying is that all that we have ultimately comes to us on loan from the hand of God. The earth is the Lord and the fullness thereof. Everything we have ultimately comes to us from the hand of God. It belongs to God. And like a money manager who entrusts to, you know, um, or, or, or like an investor who entrusts to a money manager their possessions, it, it's not to the money manager just to take the money and go, wow, that guy gave me a million dollars. I'm going to go you, use it on whatever I want. No, you need to invest that money in line with the values and the will and the priorities and for the benefit of the investor. And so too, God has given you and I what we have on loan but ultimately it belongs to God. So the talents are distributed in an unequal fashion. The talents are on loan. But what I want you to see here is that these talents are a tremendous trust and responsibility. It's a tremendous trust, a tremendous responsibility. You know, in the ancient world, this was the world of day laborers. And servants oftentimes would work for a day and then they would get payment for just that one day. And they live day by day. And so for someone to give you an entire lifetime of wages, a million dollars all at once, they were looking at you in the eyes and they were saying, I trust you. I have something of great value and I think you are capable and you are mature and you are responsible and I trust you with what I have. And this is what the master does. He trusts these servants with what he has. And I think it's interesting to bring this text into dialogue with the text, the sermon that we, uh, the teaching that we looked at two weeks ago when we were talking about our need to trust God. You know, of course, as we move forward as a church, as you live your life as an individual, you need to trust in the power of God to do what only the power of God can do. Amen? And so there are things that you just don't have the capacity to do. You are not capable of doing. It goes well beyond you. And we have to get down on our knees and trust in God to do what only God can do. Well, it's interesting. This parable, it doesn't talk so much, though, about our need to trust in God, which, of course, we do need to do. Rather, this parable reveals to us the truth that God has put great trust in us. I remember sitting in a class with Dallas Willard uh, several years back, and Dallas Willard asked this question. He said, you know, he goes, um, he said, you know, we, tr- we talk a great deal about our need to trust in God, but if you ever, have you ever stopped to think about how much God has trusted you? And that caught me up because I had never thought about that. But you think about from the very beginning, God creates all things and and he, he entrusts creation into the care of his image bearers, into our care. We are stewards of God's creation. That is a tremendous trust. And you think about the way this works itself out even in the opening chapters of Genesis. You remember what is that first responsibility that Adam is given after he's given the call to care for and cultivate the garden that God created? He was given the task of naming the animals. You remember that? And it's just interesting. You know, when when he's naming the animals, you don't see in the text that he's praying over it. He's not saying, God, what do you want me to name this this animal? No, God brings in the animals and he says, what do you got to call it? And, you know, he brings them, you know, know, one animal and it's, you know, on four legs and it's got a bushy tail and waving around and it's jumping up and down. It looks so sweet. And he says, I'm going to call it a dog. God says, that's great. That's, you know, that's God spelled backwards. Great job, you know. And then... um, (laughs) 
And then he brings him an, another animal and he says, uh, aardvark. And God's like, that would have been my first choice, but you know, that's fine. And then he brings him another animal and he says, cat. And God says, I didn't make that. I'm just kidding. But God entrusted this great responsibility over creation to us. And God has put things under your care. He has given you words that are powerful. He has given you abilities that can be effective. He has given you family underneath your jurisdiction if you're a parent. He, he has given you uh, school if you're in college. He, he has put different responsibilities under your care and he's given you a brain, he's given you a mind, he's given you certain uh, leanings and gifts and financial resources. And God says, I trust this into your hands. And in essence, he says, now do something good with it. And this is what he tells to the stewards. The manager leaves, he gives five million, two million, one million, and he says, I'm trusting you, now go out, do business, and when I come back, we'll talk. This moves to act two. Two faithful and one lazy servant. Verse 17, I'm sorry, verse 16, it says, so he, who had received five talents, went at once and traded with them, and he made five talents more. And so also he who had two talents made two talents more, but he who had received the one talent went and dug in the ground a hole and hid his master's money. So the first two servants get their allotment of cash, and it says that the guy who got five million bucks, he, it says he immediately went out. At once he went out. Frederick Dale Bruner, who has written one of my favorite commentaries on Matthew, says that this word immediately, this word, uh, he, he went at once. He says, this is the most exciting word in this parable. He says, because it reflects the ingenuity and the energy that this guy immediately pours into his efforts to follow Jesus and be faithful with what he has been entrusted. And then there's three verbs that describe his activity. It says he went out, and then he traded, and then he earned. He went out, and he traded, and he earned. And of course, this is contrasted now with another guy. He receives a million dollars, and what does he do? Instead of going out and trading and earning, this guy went away, and he dug a hole, and he threw the money in it and buried it. Now, why on earth would you take a million dollars and dig a hole and throw that money in there? But what I want to highlight is that the servants are given great freedom with what they do with their resources. They're given incredible freedom. And I think this also helps us see a contrast between what we're seeing in this story and what we saw last week in the story of the rich young ruler. You know, in the rich young ruler, it's as if Jesus immediately takes ownership and, and tells this man what to do with every penny this guy owns. He says, sell everything, divest yourself, and give it all to the poor. 
In that moment, Jesus asserted his own sovereign authority over all of this man's riches and over all that he had. And he says, sell it all, divest, give to the poor. But here, there's something different happening. Here, in contrast to be invited to divest and give, here, the servants are invited to retain actually a certain amount of riches, a certain amount of resources underneath their own jurisdiction in order that they might put to work their own ingenuity, their creativity, their imagination, their hard work, their entrepreneurial spirit, and do something well with it. And I think both divestiture of resources, giving them away, and retaining them under our care and doing something wise with them reflects something of discipleship to Jesus. On the one hand, of course, Jesus owns all that we have. And at times, he will call us to divest and to give our riches away. And all of us are called to give something away. But on the other hand, as a faithful disciple, as a mature, growing follower of Jesus, we are called to exercise that maturity and responsibility by retaining things under our care, by not selling our home, but by keeping it and by using it to extend the hospitality and the mercy of God to our next door neighbors and to, you know, to form community within the church, to host you know, all kinds of uh, our children's friends and our children's children's friends, to take our apartment and to open it up and to invite people in and to throw gatherings where we're actually forming community, we're showing hospitality, we're inviting in strangers to retain wealth under our care where uh, we actually use that wealth and we use it to generate more wealth so that we may give more wealth away. And so we're called on one level to divest, but also we have freedom to invest and to use what we have in ways that actually serve and benefit God's kingdom and his glory. Now, what kind of things might God be expecting us to do with our resources? Well, I think if you keep reading on from Matthew 25, the first half to the second half, you get some idea. Because there Jesus talks, he speaks in another parable about a certain set of resources, about clothing you might have, about food you might have, about you know, beverages you might have, about time you might have. And he invites us to use those things in order to invest in the least of these to use our clothing and our resources in order to clothe the naked and to feed the hungry and to use our time to visit those who are lonely and to open up our home and our lives to people and extend hospitality. Actually use our resources in ways that are in line with the kingdom that Jesus has inaugurated. That's what we are invited to do. And you have freedom to do that in all kinds of ways. But of course with freedom comes also the freedom to use it in very bad ways. To be lazy with what we have been given. And this is what we see in the unfaithful servant. So he takes his plot of money, you know, he digs a hole, throws it in there and covers it. <laughs> now, why did he do it? Have you thought about that? Why would this man bury a million dollars? Well, let's note, you know, this man, he could have taken his resources, he could have taken this a million dollars, and he could have blown it on things that were sinful and bad. You know, like the prodigal son who takes his father's wealth and he goes off and blows it in loose living. This guy doesn't blow it in loose living. 
He could have taken his resources and used it to build a name for himself. This guy doesn't take his resources and use it to build a name for himself. Instead, what does this guy do with his, what's been entrusted to his care? He does nothing with it. And he's exposing to us the subtle danger of doing nothing with what God has entrusted into our care. You know, in scripture, there is both what are called the sins of commission. These are the bad things that we do, but then there's also the sins of omission. And the sins of omission is not doing the good that God would call us to do. And you see this reflected in the confession of sin that we do oftentimes around here. Most merciful God, we confess that we have sinned against you in thought and word and deed by what we have done and by what what? We have left undone. And what we see here is what this man has left undone. He has done nothing. But why? Why did he do nothing? Why did he just sit on this? I mean, uh, maybe, maybe this man, maybe he was just anxious. And maybe he thought, like, I don't know what to do. with This is too much of a responsibility. I don't know what to do. I'm just going to, I'll put it in the hole. And I, I'm too worried. I might screw up with it. And I'll come back to it later. You know, maybe he's a, maybe he's a contingency thinker. You know, he thinks about all the contingencies and, well, what if I use the money this way? It's going to, you know, we're going to mess things up or if we do this and, and it's going to mess that up, can't do that and can't do this. But I can't think of a good course of action and I'm afraid to do anything, so instead I'll just do nothing. Maybe he was a procrastinator. Any procrastinators in the house? Anybody who finds, yes, there is, isn't there? You find it easy to do the easiest things first and to keep putting off the important things for later. And maybe that's this guy. Maybe he kept thinking, tomorrow. Tomorrow, I'll deal with the million dollars. Tomorrow. And then tomorrow came and, and nothing happened. And then the next day, and then the next day, and the next day. And it was always tomorrow. And maybe that's you. Maybe, you're, you. maybe you think, well, tomorrow I'll do some good. Tomorrow, when, when, I, when I finally feel secure, then I'll give more of my money away. I'll invest more. Tomorrow, I will fix the cracks in my marriage. Tomorrow, I will spend more time with the kids. Uh, tomorrow, I, I, will, I will finally do the hard work of getting out of this addictive pattern in my life. Tomorrow, 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 and tomorrow never comes. You know, laziness is not inactivity. Laziness is the failure to do what needs to be done when it needs to be done. And listen, life is running out. Every day of our lives, time is running down. I was talking to a, a, a gentleman last night who was sharing with me, you know, he said there's something that is really clarifying about receiving a terminal diagnosis. Because the reality is, is that all of us have a terminal diagnosis. I mean, the stats on death are impressive, right? One out of one people die. None of us is going to get out of here alive. And all of us one day will stand before Jesus to give an account of our lives. And at the end of the day, God will not ask you why you did not lead someone else's life, why you did not have someone else's gifts. He will ask you what you did with what you had been entrusted with. And we will give an account of God for that. And this, of course, moves to the third act in the story, 
which is the reckoning day, the day of reckoning, verse 19. We're just gonna read through this long passage, and it's sobering, but also encouraging. Verse 19, now after a long time, the master of those servants came, and he settled accounts with them. There is a day coming when accounts will be settled. And he who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five talents more, saying, Master, I delivered to you five talents here, and I have made five talents more. And his master said, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. And also he who had two talents came forward saying, Master, you delivered to me two talents and here I have made two talents more. And note well, even though the man was originally given less and made less, he receives the exact same words of commendation from the father. Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over little and now I will set you over much. You know, some of you, you think that what you have right now is a lot. And some of you, quite frankly, you are sitting, relatively speaking, on a good chunk of income, a good chunk of financial responsibilities, a good chunk of work responsibilities. You've got stuff, but God says, in comparison to ultimately what I have in store for you, all that you have right now is of little consequence. But it's important. Because what you do with what is little has eternal implications on the much that is to be given in the age to come. Verse 24, he also who had received the one talent came forward saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering seed where you scattered none. So I was afraid and I went and I hid your talent in the ground. Here you have what is yours. But the master said to him, you wicked and lazy servant. You knew, let let your own words condemn you. You knew that I reap where I have not sowed and I gather where I've scattered no seed. Is that your view of me? Well, then you ought to at least have invested my money with bankers. And at my coming, I should have received what was my own with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to him who has 10 talents. For everyone who has, more will be given and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And he says, cast that worthless servant into outer darkness. Prophetic language is often jarring and shocking to grab our attention. Here Jesus uses shocking and jarring language. Cast that worthless servant into outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So there is a day coming when the truth will finally be told and all accounts will be settled when we will meet the one who has entrusted his treasure to us and we will give an answer to him. And all of us will stand before God on that day and the books will be open and everyone will be judged by what we have done with what we have been entrusted. One scholar put it like this. He said, there is a wonderful objectivity about all of this. The books of our lives do not lie. It's not we in the end who get to narrate our own story, but God, whose all-seeing eye renders us transparent and vulnerable. Strange as it may seem, this too is grace. 
It is important that the end of my story and of all stories be marked by a moment of absolute truth-telling, free from the distorting influence of human self-deception and self-interest. And on that day, God will shine a light over our lives and he will expose what is there and we will give an account. And listen, God will not hold us accountable because God is mad at us. God will hold us accountable because we matter to God. Because we are mature, responsible image bearers of God. And so God will hold us responsible not as victims, not as mere cases, not as simply dysfunctional people who are, who are lost. He will hold us accountable as responsible moral agents before his throne. And that's sobering, isn't it? You know, I was thinking about that this week, I was thinking about my own life and the different ways in which God has entrusted so much to me. And then it got me thinking about our church family and all that God has entrusted to us. You see, we have an accountability individually, but we also as a church will be hold, held accountable to God collectively. Because God has given to this church family through the heritage that we have, through the property we have inherited, through the buildings that this church owns so much. And we have been invited by the master who is entrusted, he, he is glad to entrust so much. This church is entrusted with so much. I can remember the very first meeting I ever had with anybody at this church. I flew out and I met with Dale Brown and he gave me a tour of the entire facility and I began with the storefronts and we walked through all the storefronts and then we started to walk through this maze that is this church and all the different crevices in the basements and the tunnels that go underneath the property. And um, <laughs> I was completely dizzy by the end of it. And I was overwhelmed. And to be honest with you, it was, that was probably the worst thing the search committee could have done was to give me that tour at the beginning. Because I almost, I almost called my wife after that and said, you know what, I'm done. I'm like, this is so much work. There's so much opportunity, so much potential here. But there's so much of, of, of what we have that's not being used properly. It's not being used in ways that benefit and serve this community, that form community, that, that, that form you know, you know, people and, and, and are, is used for the gospel. We're sitting on a lot and we've got to put it to use by the master for the glory of God and for the furtherance of the gospel. And we have a responsibility before God to do that. I was kind of hit with that. And it's good for us to be aware of that and to recognize we have been given much, but to whom much is given, much is required. So part of what we're doing, you know, with this building campaign and all this stuff is, is we, as, as, as leaders of this church and, and we as a church family, we are seeking to step into greater levels of usefulness for the kingdom of God in the years ahead. We're seeking to be faithful with what we have and to make investments so that in the years ahead, the gospel could go further out, that new generations can be reached with the good news of Jesus Christ. And it is our desire that all of us in this room would 100% want to participate in the future God has given us. And so there is a day of reckoning when we will answer for what God has given to us. 
Now, <laughs> we, we talked this morning about trust, about freedom, and about accountability, but there's one word that's not in my outline that seems to be lacking from this story, and it's the single word, grace. When you read this, don't you wonder, like, where is the grace in this story? You think we're all going to be held accountable, you know, and we're going to answer for all that we've done, and to the people that have done well with what they've been given, they're going to receive that commendation, well done, good and faithful servants, but to those, all the rest cast out, it's outer darkness for you, you know, and, and um, we, we might find ourselves asking, where is the grace in this story? Listen, I was listening to a sermon that my brother preached on this text. He's also a preacher, a very good preacher, by the way. He's also 5'6". <laughs> but he said this, and it helped me as I was reading this. He said, you know, th th this, this parable, yes, it's about a master who goes away. It's about servants who are entrusted with a great deal and who receive a great commendation from God. But he said this, the true servant, the true steward in the parable is Jesus himself. He is the one who has been entrusted with all authority and in heaven and on earth. And he has lowered himself and he has come into creation and he has always done everything that has pleased the Father. Jesus is the true servant, the true steward who receives rightly the absolute and unwavering commendation of his Father. You are my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased, well done, good and faithful servant. You have given your life to the uttermost for all that belong to me. And the irony, of course, of Jesus being seen as the steward is that Jesus, though he deserves this commendation, actually came in to creation in order to drink to the uttermost the full cup of God's wrath and judgment and godlessness in this world. He himself was cast out on the cross into outer darkness where there was weeping and gnashing of teeth. So that all of us, who have found ourselves taking paths that have led us into our own self-imposed darkness, our own lives of regret can be freed from that and be broken into, be brought back in through the love of Jesus Christ into the Father's family and receive that commendation through Jesus, well done. And those who receive this commendation are all the more eager to go out into this world and to use all that we have in ways that honor and serve Jesus our master and that demonstrate this sacrificial love for our neighbors and that exude the values of God's kingdom of justice and love. It is those whose, whose hearts have been penetrated by this incredible good news that is transformed and it actually moves us out into lives of faithfulness. You know, it's pretty ironic in this story because the guy who does nothing with what he has, 
He has a very stingy view of God, a very cynical view of God. Oh, you reap where you have not sown. Like, is there anything in the story that would have indicated that? Actually, what happens is, is the people that do much are those who have a very generous view of God. The ones who receive five and two, when they double what they have, do you know at the end of the story, do you know now who the 10 and the four belong to? The master has given all of this abundance back to his servants. He says, to, my, to the one who has more will be given. He says, God is a generous, loving father. And those who have been penetrated by the generosity of God on full display in the cross of Jesus who goes into the darkness to pull us out and to take us into the father's kingdom of love and joy. Those who have this view of God that is so generous, so magnanimous, enter into lives of generosity and openness. It may be so for us.